Well, hey, Anthem, Anthem Ventura and Camarillo. This is Bert here coming to you from the Anthem Ventura offices in downtown Ventura. Uh, we had some different Sundays this past week, and so we actually weren't digging into Exodus 34 and continuing on in the series. And so what I wanted to do is just take a few minutes and do that actually right here with you, whether you're listening in the car, uh, watching maybe with your community group or your family or something like that. I wanted to keep the train going through uh, Exodus chapter 34. And so if you have have a Bible and you're in a spot where you can open your Bible, open it up to Exodus 34. We're just going to start by reading uh, the text that we are camping out in for seven weeks. And so last week we kicked off this series called God Has a Name, really inspired by our friend John Mark Comer's book uh, and his dissection of Exodus 34. And really what we were trying to do throughout this series is understand God on his terms. Uh, and so what we kind of talked about last week is how we often come to scripture, come to the church, come to God, and want to understand him on our terms, when it's convenient with us, how it's convenient for us, etc. And, and really what this text is, is a profound invitation to know God and how he's revealed himself to us. And so that kind of brings us here to Exodus 34. And so it's these two verses, and I hope you guys are working on memorizing these two verses. It's two quick verses, uh, and by the end, we as a church want to have these two verses memorized. And so Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, or we know that's Yahweh, when we see the Lord in all caps, it's, it's Yahweh. So Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So that's where we're at. And we spent most of last week just talking about God's name, Yahweh. And really the prime question we were trying to huddle around was what is the meaning of his name? When he says Yahweh, it's not a, a label. It's not a name you slap down on a dinner reservation. It's, it's not that. It's something more to it. There's significance and meaning. So in, in kind of Old Testament times and ancient Hebrew, there's a lot wrapped up in a name. And so when someone would give you their name, they're not just giving you like a name tag that you would write. Uh, they're giving you who they are as a person. Uh, so maybe it spoke to something about their past, about their family, about what they did for work, maybe something about their future and their divine destiny. And so there's a lot wrapped up in a name. And we we're trying to figure out what was the meaning of God's name? And so we talked about his nature, his character, and, and that phrase, I am who I am in Exodus 3, right? I will be who I will be, meaning who God is, he will forever be. And so as we unpack what is happening in Exodus 34 here, we know that these qualities of God that he is giving to us are eternal qualities of God. And so last week we were honing in on the name Yahweh, and today as we are going line by line through Exodus 34, we are honing in on Yahweh. Again, he says his name twice. Do you guys catch that? Look back at verse 6. It's a, it's a little bit strange. God says his name twice. And so just for context, maybe why that would happen. Today, if you're writing an email, a blog post, an article, if you see something in a book or, or whatever, when you want to emphasize a point, what do you do to emphasize that point? You might like do all caps, you might do bold or italics or something to really grab the reader's attention. 
in ancient Hebrew, if you wanted to grab the reader's attention, if you wanted to bring emphasis to something, you repeated it, right? They didn't have punctuation the way we have punctuation. They didn't have formatting the way we have formatting. So if you wanted to call attention to something really important, you would repeat it. And so what God is doing here is repeating his name, and that's not an accident. It's not a stutter. He wants us to stop. He wants us to consider more deeply. He wants us to take a beat and not rush through what his name means. And so if last week our prime question was, what is the significance of God's name? This week our prime question is, why does he need a name in the first place? Why does God need a name? What's wrong with God as a name, right? Why was it important for God to clarify that he is God and he has a name? He is an Elohim, but his name is Yahweh. In fact, throughout the Bible, God is, is kind of rarely used to talk about God. That word Elohim is usually paired up with, when it is used, Yahweh. More often, he's called by his name, Yahweh or Yahweh Elohim. And so to answer that question, like, why does God need a name? There's, there's a short answer, and then the longer version is what we're going to unpack for the next few minutes. The short version is God needs a name because the scriptures tell us there are many Gods, many lowercase g gods, that to simply call God God is not enough because there are other gods at work. And so we're going to take the rest of our time to maybe unpack that a little bit more because that may be jarring or unfamiliar language. It may be a different worldview or something different that you may have known or thought about the scriptures before. And so to help us out, I'm going to go back to the very beginning. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. We looked at this verse last week as well. It tells us a lot about God and who he is and what he is on about. And in Genesis 1 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we said last week that that word God is a title, it's not a name, it's Elohim. And uh, it's like a category or a label. And it's used for the creator of everything in the universe, the one who, who sparked everything, this, this creator being who set the world and universe into motion. But in the Bible, it's also used to describe other spiritual beings. Is that weird? Does that freak you out a little bit? Elohim, is interesting, can be translated both as singular and plural. So when you read God and the gods in scripture, it's actually the same word. That root word Elohim can be singular or plural. And an Elohim is an invisible but real spiritual creature. An Elohim is an invisible but real spiritual creature. And the key for us as we're dissecting some Hebrew language is looking at the verb that's sitting in that sentence. Because in ancient Hebrew, the subject and the verb always have to agree. And so when we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that verb created is singular. And so we know we're talking about one Elohim, not a lot of Elohim. But in other places, we see scripture frequently talking about multiple Elohims. And so that's what we have to understand a little bit. And, and even Genesis 1-1, to say that there was one creator God who created everything, was a provocative claim to make in the, in the BCs, the before Christ, kind of the, the ancient world, where there was a lot of stories of how everything came to be. And the thing about the creation story in the Bible is it's set up against a whole lot of other creation stories, a whole lot of other nations, tribes, and peoples trying to define how we got here. 
And so along with the Genesis creation story are other stories of Greek mythology or other stories from Eastern religions or maybe one of the more famous ones is the Babylonian Enuma Elish, right? And in that story, the world is created out of this epic battle between this one god, Marduk, and another god, like this monster god. And, and this god, Marduk, kills everybody and out of the corpse of this other god, the world comes to being, right? And so that's how we get the world. And what is shocking and surprising is actually so many of these other creation stories tell the story of how the world was born out of this cosmic and eternal strife and war and chaos. And so the earth is just simply like collateral damage from some war the gods were having millions or thousands of years ago. But what the Bible does is claim something that is so out of sync and out of step with its time and so countercultural that there is one creator God who created everything not out of cosmic strife and war and battle, but as the outflow of love and creativity. But just because there is one true creator God doesn't mean there aren't other gods at work. In fact, throughout the Bible, the writers and the players in the story assume there are many gods that are working, many gods that have activity, that they are real, they are active, and they are sometimes in conflict with Yahweh, the true God. And this would be maybe a good time for a slight detour, and this is why I have the whiteboard behind me, because it's going to be very helpful for us to understand God and the gods. It would be a good time for us to help frame what Scripture is actually talking about here and how to understand and process through many gods. And to think about God and gods might be jarring language. And so just follow me here for the next couple of minutes, because I think one of the reasons that language is jarring for us is because the people in the Bible Assume something maybe you and I don't always assume as westernized Christians living in Southern California in 2018. And they assume that the universe is a spiritually active and dynamic place with more out there than what we can touch, see, sense, smell, feel, all of that. There's, there's more behind what we can physically interpret with our five senses. And this is what's called a worldview difference. They assume something different about the world. And a worldview is simply how you see the world. It's the lens in which you interpret stories and experiences. It's the stories you believe. It's how you see the world from your unique vantage point. Living and growing up in Southern California or maybe growing up somewhere else. And that those are all experiences you bring to your worldview. We all have worldview and some of it we control and some of it we don't control. And most of us uh, today have a hard time believing in a spiritually dynamic and active universe that we cannot see. Even Christians who are supposed to believe the stuff that's here in the Bible, we have a hard time believing there's more out there than what we could see, smell, touch, sense, feel. And that's because we've all been, been shaped by not only the Bible as Christians, but we've been shaped by this post-enlightenment, logical, rational, practical, secular, materialistic kind of thinking that says, all that is here is all that there is. Right? The world is what I can see and what I can touch. And we've all been shaped by that. And, and even as Christians, our idea of, of angels and demons is highly caricaturized. Right? So if we think about angels, you're maybe thinking of like, 
Swedish male models that are really tall, blonde hair, 10-foot wingspan, right? And that's the, the image of the Archangel Michael or something like that. Or even demons, it's highly caricaturized, or maybe it's Bugs Bunny with a little cartoon devil on the shoulder, like in red tights and kind of got the pitchfork and everything like that. This is the worldview we all grew up in. And the Bible uses all sorts of words to describe the gods, right? Heavenly beings, sons of God, sons of the Most High, cherubim, seraphim, angels, demons, princes, lords, uh, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil, powers of this dark world, evil spirits, and there's even more in that list as well. And all talking about these real but invisible spiritual creatures that inhabit this universe and are part of this world. And what is clear through scripture is we live in a spiritually dynamic world, a spiritually dense world jammed with both humans and non-human beings. And so to help us get a better grasp on how scripture is talking about that, and honestly what it means for understanding God and how he's revealed himself, we're going to have to understand a few of the major worldviews that have existed for thousands of years. And some of the, the major ways people have interpreted what they see the world like. And so to do that, I'm going to draw a couple of charts here. So I hope you can see on the whiteboard behind me. And um, maybe the first one that we're going to unpack, uh, the major worldview, is polytheism. This would have been the major worldview of, um, of probably most cultures, nations, tribes in the time that the, the Old Testament events were happening. And so uh, you have... Um, you know, the gods here. And then you have all these different ways up to the gods. And so maybe you had Baal, right? You had Ray, you had Marduk. You had all these different ways to get up to God. And they were all kind of equal in authority, uh, kind of parallel gods. And they all maybe had different roles or were in different regions or something like that. But there was just kind of an understanding that we live in a spiritually dynamic world. And there's a whole lot of ways to get to the gods. Okay, that there are many gods. They're everywhere and have equal or parallel power and authority. Now, what is another major worldview today is um, not necessarily polytheism, at least in the, the culture you and I are in today. But, and it's a relative newcomer on the scene, but it's this worldview of universalism. Right? And so the idea of universalism is that there is some sort of God up here, and there are a number of ways to get to he, she, it, they, we, us, it doesn't matter, whatever the God is, no matter what you believe, we all end up in the right place. So whether you believe in Yahweh, right, whether you believe in Muhammad or part of the Islam religion, whether you are just spiritual, Right, but not religious or Buddhist, whatever. You can believe anything you want, and it eventually gets you back to God. That's kind of the prevailing worldview that I think we live in today, is that somewhere out there, there's a God, and uh, I'll pass lead up to that, to that God. Now, the third major worldview is that of Jesus in the Bible, and it's this worldview of monotheism. 
So you go. Right, so this is the prevailing worldview in the scriptures. And kind of the same way as polytheism, poly meaning many, theism, gods, monotheism means one god, mono meaning one, theism meaning gods. And this is how a lot of Westerners have defined monotheism. And this is how probably a lot of you and I have interpreted this, is that there is one God and there is one way to God. Jesus is the way we get up that mountain to God. And there are a whole lot of other false religions, false gods. So you think Baal, Ray, Marduk, even other religions, Islam, etc. And those aren't real. Those are cults. Those are figments of imaginations. Those are con jobs. And so we label them false gods. Something not to believe. And this is how many of us will process through our understanding of monotheism. Right? And part of the reason I think we believe this is because of something – well, I think part of the reason we believe this is we confuse two separate but parallel ideas in Scripture. And they kind of start out here in Exodus chapter 20. And so Exodus chapter 20 is God uh, giving his people the Ten Commandments for the first time around. So that's what's happening here. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. I'm Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. A lot of us skip over that one and simply combine it with the second commandment, which is, in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is heaven and above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not have any idols. We often... Combine those two, thus confusing one of the things God was trying to communicate to us. Is that there are a lot of gods, and you are not to worship them. You are to worship me alone. And in the second commandment, there are a lot of things you can worship other than gods, like idols. Don't worship those things either. There is a commandment about gods and a commandment about idols. And Israel must stay away from them both. So just to clarify a little bit, a God or an Elohim, like we defined earlier, is an, an invisible but real spiritual creature. But an idol is different. An idol is a dead statue. It's a representation of something else. Uh, it's maybe made of wood or stone or metal or something like that. It's a, it's a physical thing, like this pen right here. It's a physical thing, and it has no life to it. And here's where they intersect a little bit. An idol by itself can't do anything. Right? Just like this pen by itself can't do anything until someone leverages that pen to do something. In the same way, idols can't do anything until they're leveraged by something or someone to do something. Right? It's just a rock, an idol, just a stone, or, or something lifeless. But there are Elohim that at times, there are gods that at times are lurking behind that idol, giving that idol power. That's really when an idol becomes dangerous. This pen is useless until I pick it up 
and use it. In the same way, idols are useless until something or someone gets behind that thing and puts it to use. That's when an idol becomes really dangerous, when it becomes a gateway and a pathway to a real spiritual being. And in the story of the Israelites, we pick up in Exodus 32. And so just for a bit of context, Moses is, is up on the mountain. The Israelites are getting really impatient, right? And they just start, they're craving to worship. They got to worship something. And so they tell Aaron, hey, make us something to worship. And so they make this golden calf. And so the golden calf is made and Moses is up on the mountain and the Israelites get, get Aaron uh, to make them this golden calf that they can worship and they do worship it. And then God is infuriated, sends Moses down to squash what's going on. And look what he says. Yahweh says in Exodus 32, 7 and 8, the Lord God said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves and they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. There's an Old Testament scholar, A.W. Pink. He says about this moment that Satan had been let into the camp. There was something more behind this golden calf than just a hunk of metal. Think back to the story of God's people enslaved in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 7 and 8, Moses is confronting Pharaoh and his magicians or his priests, and they are matching tit-for-tat Moses' miracles, right? It, making the, the Nile turn to blood, making frogs come out of it, right? They're, they're matching those things. And how could they be matching those things if they're false gods or false priests or just magicians? There's real spiritual activity at work in that story. And the point being that there are gods and they are not powerless in this universe. And God tells Israel, don't ever worship them. Not even for a second. Don't worship them. And one of the most famous prayers and refrains for all of God's people has been what's known as the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Shema goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So maybe to, to read his name back in, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God is saying there is one true creator God himself, Yahweh. Only worship him. Only love him. Only serve him. And if only Israel had obeyed those first two commandments. All throughout the story of God and his people, the prevailing sin of Israel, what do you think it is? What's the prevailing sin of Israel? Over and over and over again, what gets them into the most trouble? It's idolatry, right? It's, it's worshiping something else other than God. But here's the reality. They were never really tempted to worship Yahweh or something else. That was never really on the table for the Israelites. The temptation for the Israelites was to worship Yahweh and something else. 
It was to, to simply lump Yahweh in, to bow down and give in to the polytheistic culture of their day and to enter into this polyamorous relationship where it's God and a whole bunch of other things. And God says, I'm not having that. That is not how we're going to work together. And so over and over again, Israel goes after these other gods. And because they think they will give them what they want, whether it's military, victory, safety, security, riches, comfort, whatever it is, they go to those gods thinking they'll get it. And there's this repeating pattern in the Old Testament of Israel goes after the gods, it goes badly, they ask for mercy, and Yahweh comes to save them over and over and over again. Which is why some of the Psalms are a cry out to God to come and rescue them from this injustice. That's why we have a Psalm like Psalm 82. If you have your Bible, turn there, Psalm 82. And Psalm 82 is, is a really weird psalm if you haven't read it before. It's very strange. And it's this moment where the Israelites are asking God to do something about this back and forth, something about all the gods that they're tempted to worship all the time, to put an end to the tyranny of these evil, wicked powers that are at work, to drive them out, to put a stop to them wreaking all this havoc and set the world free. And so look at Psalm 82, verse 1 here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Uh-oh, that's weird. Elohim has taken his place in the divine council, and in the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. There's uh, an Old Testament scholar, Aaron Chalmer, and he says this about kind of the scene that we're picturing. He says, the heavenly realm appears to be depicted as operating along lines similar to an ancient Near Eastern royal court with the monarch surrounded by counselors and envoys that advise the king and perform his will. Meaning, the picture that Psalm 82 is giving us is there is a God among the gods and he's taking counsel and he's in their presence and they're conversing with him and he's conversing with them. That there is an Elohim among the Elohim. And so see what happens in the next phrase here in, in verse 2. And this is God. This is the Elohim. This is Yahweh saying to other gods in verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Right? This is, this is God talking to the other gods and what are they guilty of in, in verse 3? In verse 2 and verse 3, what are they guilty of? They're guilty of injustice. They're, they're, they're guilty of, of wreaking havoc on earth, causing strife on earth. And look at how it ends. Verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Check out verse 6. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Right? In other words, you're going down. Right? This, is, this is not how. I'm going to put an end to this. This is not going to continue on forever. God, among the gods, are saying to the other gods, you will fall like men. You shall die. That there will be an end to all of this injustice. This is super intense. But look at the closing line here. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. What this psalm is telling us is there, there is one true creator, God, 
who made the universe and everything in it. He has no equal, no rival, no parallel, but there is also a multiplicity of gods, of these wannabe lowercase g gods, these invisible but real spiritual beings all vying for power and authority. And before we're quick to dismiss gods and idolatry as an issue for another time, another place, people less enlightened than we are, people less intelligent than we are, um, we got to look to the New Testament because the New Testament writers seemed crazy concerned that we will fall into the exact same trap that the Israelites did. They seem intent on convincing us that idol worship can still happen in all of us and that there are still gods lurking behind those idols. A couple of examples. Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, free from, flee from idolatry. John, in what may be some of the last words written in scripture in 1 John 5, says, little children, keep yourself from idols. And uh, back in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, flee idolatry, he's kind of talking into context about whether or not these Christians should be eating meat that have been sacrificed to gods or idols or something like that. So it becomes a really sticky situation. And what Paul says just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Okay, that's a rhetorical question. He's basically saying idols are nothing. But look at verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. For Paul, the danger of idolatry isn't just letting a good thing become a God thing or some backward set of worship priorities. For Paul, the danger is that you end up in a relationship with a demon. In the early church, Idolatry was a volatile issue uh, because in the ancient Mediterranean, temples were the, not only the, the hub for worship in a city, but they were the hub for, for business, for friendships, for deals to be made. And so if you became a Christian and had to stop going to those temples that were worshiping other gods, that cuts you off from your means of making a living. It cuts you off from being able to marry your daughter away. It cuts you off from being able to buy and sell land or buy and sell property or livestock or whatever. It was a very real thing and it literally cost you to refuse to be in the place of idol or other god worship. And while we maybe don't have the temptation to, of going to the temples uh, and being affected by that, uh, in our Western secular materialist culture, the gods become a little bit more non-spiritual. So things like money, sex, power, fame, image, safety, comfort, security, and, and anything that is taking the place of God in your heart as, as worship, right, as, as an object of our worship, these become the gods of our day. One of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, he wrote this. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, an identity, then it is an idol. The human heart is indeed a factory that mass produces idols. And remember the temptation for the Israelites was never to worship Yahweh or something else. It was never to, to worship God or worship money or to, to worship your image or power or comfort or whatever. But it was always God and something. 
God and money. God and sex. God and power. God and image. God and comfort. And our hearts are geared up and ready to produce idols to set alongside God. So worship then becomes the sacrifice of our money or time or your health or your family or your virginity or whatever it costs you to get what you want out of life. But like those lifeless idols, like this pen, this lifeless pen, Israel's were not to worship. There are full of life gods behind those things. And so money in and of itself may be lifeless. The, the idol of comfort may be just an idol, lifeless dead on its own. But there are gods lurking behind those things, waiting for a chance to strike up a connection. An, an invisible but real spiritual creature using the lifeless idols of our day to divert our attention and affection and worship from God. The Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, when we humans commit idolatry, worshiping that which is not God, as if it were, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos a power. By the way, notice the link he says. Notice the link there. When we commit idolatry, worshiping that which is not God as if it were, we thereby give other creatures. So by worshiping idols, we're giving other gods power, prestige, and authority over us, which we under God were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority over the world and give it instead to that thing, whatever it is. I wonder if the non-spiritual things in our secular world are the most spiritually lethal for you and I. Those things that seem so uh, distant from what may, what may be considered worshiping other gods or worshiping other idols, those non-spiritual things, I wonder if those are the most spiritually lethal. So that worldview Monotheism, kind of, that's to the extreme right there, right? It's, it's one true God, and that there are no other gods out here. There's one mountain to climb to get to that God, and it's Jesus. And the problem is, this worldview right here doesn't leave any space for other gods. It doesn't leave any space for other spiritual forces that are at work that may have a part to play. And it maybe isn't so helpful because it deceives us into thinking that we can't worship something that isn't God. That it's, it's actually not physically possible to worship anything other than the true God. That, that everything else, if you're spending time making that, that's not real worship. That's not, that's not the same thing as worshiping God. And so here's maybe a better way to think about monotheism. So uh, instead of you know, one true God over here and then all these fake gods, there are actually other real gods out here. So whatever, whatever it is, other gods, other religions. There are other gods. And they're real. They're at work. 
So whether it's Zeus, Shiva, Ray, Marduk, whether it's Buddhism, Islam, spiritual but not religious, other religions or whatever, there are real other gods out there. Call them gods, call them demons, call them like whatever you feel comfortable. The Bible has a, a large library of language to describe these other real but invisible spiritual beings. Okay, so call it whatever is, is most comfortable for you. But there are other gods at work and they're not just a con job, they're not fake. There are real spiritual forces at play. And it's not that all like gods lead up to the same mountain. It's that we have another god that is in a totally different category altogether. We have Yahweh. And he's totally different. He's, a, he's not only above and, and more supreme and greater than the other gods, but he's in a totally different category altogether. So it's not that all paths leave up the same mountain. It's that all paths lead up various mountains, and then there's one true God that created everything. And at the top of that mountain is the one true creator God over all the others. And he's not just bigger and better. He's in a totally different category. And it's this Lord called Yahweh, the creator of everything, or what the New Testament calls the God of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, he's in heaven and, and not on earth. And there's no path up this mountain, right? There's no path up this mountain. Rather, we worship a God who descended to us. There's no path up this mountain. In Jesus, he comes down the mountain to dwell with humanity. He comes in the form of a helpless baby from a poor family. He comes in the form of a homeless peasant, itinerant rabbi from Galilee, and he comes in the form of the savior of the world. So it's really not so much that Jesus is the only way to God, but a better way to think about it is Jesus is God come to us. Like we said last week, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. Or as Eugene Peterson put it, Yahweh became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So the New Testament writers look back at Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection. They make it clear that one of Jesus' primary goals was to disarm the powers at war with Yahweh. John, in 1 John 3, says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Peter, summarizing the work of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, said how, uh, let's see, yeah, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Well, I like how Mark just gets right to the point in Mark chapter 1. He went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And have you noticed in the Old Testament, we don't have one story of an exorcism, of, of a demon or an ear, evil spirit being cast out of a person. We don't have one story. But if you notice that we have them all over the Gospels, everywhere Jesus is going, he's casting out demons left and right. It's like Oprah giving away cars. He's getting rid of demons out of people. And one, per, and one guy, he unleashes a legion of demons out of someone, and they go into a herd of pigs that fall off a cliff. It's crazy. This is like a regular part of Jesus' ministry is casting out demons. And what Jesus is doing is he's answering the people's cries, the Israelites' cries to Yahweh in Psalm 82. He's putting an end to the injustice of these gods. 
He's putting an end to the, the evil and the havoc that they are wreaking throughout all humanity. He's putting an end to that injustice of the gods. And nowhere is this more clear and compelling than in Jesus' death and resurrection. For a brief moment, it looks like Yahweh has lost, that his son is dead, hanging limp on a cross. And it feels like the end. But after three days, Jesus defeats death. The tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive, and his resurrection breaks the spine of death itself. And he doesn't do it through violence, but through sacrificial love. Paul, writing to the Colossians, says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When you and I think about the cross, I would be willing to bet most often we are thinking about the substitutionary atonement or the idea that Jesus died in our place to make us right with God. Like, yes and amen, absolutely. But that's not it. For the first 1,000, 1,500 years in church history, when Christians thought of the cross, they thought primarily of his victory over the evil spiritual forces of this world. And so for most of church history, when Christians think of the cross, they primarily thought of this idea in Latin called Christus Victor, or Christ is victorious. Right, that Yahweh has been at war with all these spiritual powers of the universe for millennia, and the cross is the decisive blow in the campaign against evil, right, the breakthrough victory. And on the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and his pantheon of wild and dangerous beings and even death itself. Here's the reality. You and I are created beings. We talked about last week. We are hardwired for worship. As, as one who is created, we are bent and hardwired to worship that or who which has created us. Made by the creator to love and live for something greater than ourselves. Worship is not a religious thing. It is a human thing. Right? Followers of Jesus worship, but Jews worship. Muslims worship. Hindus, Wiccans, Druids, the Neo-Pagans, they all worship. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all worship. Tribal witch doctors, your barista worships, your doctor worships, your neighbor worships, your co-worker worships, everybody worships, and we all make worship and sacrifices. And when you, just as like a side note, when you read about animal sacrifices in the Bible, what, what were animals and livestock to the people in the Bible? They were, they were currency, really. Right? In the ancient world, animals were currency, money over time. And so to reverse engineer this just a little bit, as we look at our lives, what are we worshiping? Right? If, we, if we just let the actions of our lives be the determining factor in who we were worshiping as the true God, what might our lives communicate? Are we worshiping Yahweh alone? Or are we falling into the same trap and temptation the Israelites did and worshiping God and some other things? To help us reverse engineer that a little bit, think, where do you spend your money? 
Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time, that precious commodity of time? When you're in need or in trouble or need an escape, where do you go for escape? Do you go to nature for escape? Do you go to Netflix and binge a new show for an escape? Do you head out to surf? Right? Do you just get on the open road? Do you turn to drugs, alcohol, porn? Where do you go when you need an escape? And maybe most important, where do you look for meaning and significance that will even last beyond your life on earth? Your career, your family, that paper you're writing, that book you're writing, that album you're recording, that project you're working on? Where are you looking for meaning and significance that will last beyond you? We just can't stop worshiping. It's hardwired into our DNA. We can't stop worshiping any more than we can stop breathing. So, why does God have a name? Because amongst the gods of the universe, there is one true creator God who made the whole world and everything good, and he alone is worthy of your worship. That's it. That's what... That's what we're getting at. That is, this is the big idea. There are many gods in the universe all vying for your attention and your affection and your worship. And there's one true creator God who is worthy of all of that. And he tells us, don't run after these idols. Don't run after these other gods. Worship me alone. He is the only true source of life and salvation and peace and security and meaning and significance that lasts beyond this world into the next. And so as the ancient Hebrews would pray, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Love him. Love Yahweh. Not Baal, not Zeus, not Aphrodite, not the new Audi, not V-cut abs, not your image, not more Instagram followers. Love God, worship God. Honestly, may the beautiful grace of God lead us to repent from all the other gods and idols you and I worship and move us to worship Yahweh, the God above all gods and all idols. And I want to close by reading another psalm. Psalm 47 and this uh, heading, I know I know headings weren't in the original text, but sometimes the headings grab me. I don't know if that happens to you. But the heading on this one grabbed me because it said, God is king over all the earth. And it says, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. And he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of the trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So that's it. Well done, 
You guys made it? I know this is a little heady. I know there was a lot to process here in thinking about different worldviews uh, and how the, the biblical writers and players in the story understood uh, how to process God among many gods. But don't lose the big idea here that amongst the gods of the universe, there are real but spiritual beings and there are lifeless idols in whom those spiritual beings might inhabit. Among all of that stuff, there is one true creator God, Yahweh, and he alone is worthy of your worship of your affection, of your attention. Nothing else in this world that is vying for those things is worth it except Yahweh himself. So love Yahweh. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might.